0: The cliché has always been that Africa is a potential that has lived below its expectations. It's a story told of how a continent, abundantly flown with the proverbial milk and honey, still wanders in hunger. Yet the African story is not all about gloom. Africa is also a story of brilliance, inspiration, global breakthroughs, innovation and invention of living hallmarks of a story that is rarely told. A story of an Africa that is changing, an Africa that has changed. Hello, my name is Isaac Nu no Abwa, entrepreneur, thinker, and writer. And here, on the Change Africa podcast, I bring these stories to life. You're going to have up-close and personal conversations with the change makers leading Africa's transformation. Amini Kanjuju, you're welcome to the Change Africa podcast. This is where we have trailing conversations with some of the leaders we believe are the helm of the African transformation. So Amini, our guest today, is, well, she has had a very interesting career across so many things. Right now, she's the Executive Director for the International University of Grand Bassam Foundation, but I'll let her speak to us about the things that she's done she's been strategic partner for the africa integrals and before that actually one of the most impressive things that he's done is to be in the ceo and the first african at that of the africa america institute so thank you very much for being with us amini can you tell us about yourself i mean the proper introduction this is just me putting around the wish
1: <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me um to this uh to this po- podcast. I I feel like I'm in good company now and not only because I'm with you, but um you've interviewed others that I respect uh quite a bit. So, um thank thank you for putting me in that company. Um just very briefly because I think you know we're going to talk about this and maybe in detail, but Um, Indeed, I'm currently the executive director of the IUGB Foundation, and IUGB stands for International University of Grand Bassam, uh, which is a private university um, in Côte d'Ivoire, in Grand Bassam. And what's interesting, there are many interesting things about the university, but I think one thing that is uh, quite interesting is the fact that it was uh, modeled after um, an American university structure and specifically Georgia State University in Atlanta. So here you are, um, you know, in a Francophone country and here we have a university that teaches in English and and tries to follow the American liberal arts ethos. So that's very exciting for me to be a part of that. And, um, and you know, just really talks about my passion for education, for entrepreneurship, for skills training, for um, the youth of Africa.
0: Yeah, so before this, you had been working in so many organizations. Can you just hone in on your role that you played, trying to bring educational talent to the US, get them the best exposure to all the world of education can give um, with the Africa America Institute?
1: Yeah, my experience at the Africa America Institute was, was you know, really exciting. And um, I joined an institution that had been around for decades, whose main mission was to pluck out, you know, the best talent that Africa has to offer, and then um, allow that talent to come to the United States and, and access higher education in United States. And in those days, it was mainly master's program and PhD programs. At some point, um, AI started providing, there was a, a little bit of uh, bachelor's degrees that were provided, but not that many. It was mainly master's and PhD programs. And, um, and it was just, it's, 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 it's an exciting project, right? Um, and it was mainly funded by the US government. Um and many of those individuals are some of the leaders that we know today. So President Alassane Ouattara um of Cote d'Ivoire benefited from an AI scholarship. Um Hage Gaingab of um Namibia benefited from uh an AI uh, scholarship and I could go on and on. Um some became presidents, other became prime ministers, other became leaders of various institutions. Um and, and some became business people. So, and, and, you know, and it was men and women um, who, who participated in the scholarship programs. So it's, it's an institution that's had a huge impact. And um, when I joined um, AAI, many of the programs that I just described were really no longer available and were no longer being funded by the U.S. government. Uh, there was a shift in the U.S. government um, sort of aid program. And there was a move away from higher education and a higher focus to sort of primary education, for example. So um, when I joined, one of the challenges that I had to figure out is how do we make sure that AI stays relevant and, and it still produces and identifies, you know, the best minds that Africa has to offer and allows these minds to be developed from an educational perspective, so that they can go out and become leaders, and so um, we started looking at higher education in Africa. We started to look at what's the landscape of universities in Africa, and what what were the bright spots, and could our best minds, you know, go to those universities? Um, in addition to obviously having access to universities from all over the world, including um, the United States.
0: Yeah, yeah. So. I think I just want to, again, zero in on something that you said. Um, in reference to something, actually, that IUGB posted some time ago on Twitter, there's a quote from Barack Obama that says that in the 21st century, the best um, anti-poverty program is a world-class education. And I just want us to start a conversation from the What is a world-class education?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. That's a very good question. And I And I don't know that I have the perfect answer, but I think a world class education, you know, no matter where you receive it, maybe has the following elements. Um, it has an element of um, sort of you know research and and um, you know an inquisitiveness that is allowed by the students um, that allowed them to not just take in information, from professors and the like, but, but also produce information and produce new knowledge. So I think a world-class education has that element, those elements, research and knowledge production. The other thing that I think a world-class education has is the ability to not just work in terms of theory, but it also in terms of practice. So the, the, so use, being able to practice what you, you learn is, is an element of a world-class education. Um, because I'm a globalist, I think a world-class education includes um, an international element, meaning that you are working with people from, from many parts of the world. And also, um, and, you know, and when we, as we talk about inclusion these days, particularly, I think a world-class education does also um, include working and going to school with people of different socioeconomic uh, environments and so, and and, and and then let's not forget um, a huge element of a world class education is just great professors, professors who have had um, practical experience, professor who can really churn the students on in terms of whatever topic that they're, they're that they're teaching. Um, so, teachers, research, um, knowledge production, an, interna- an international environment. A socio-economic environment that um, that allows you to learn from different people, and um, and and you know, and then obviously just the ability to you know, and this is an issue you know, in, particularly with our public universities in Africa, the ability to start your college career or your graduate school career and finish on time, <laughs> you know, um, that's you know that 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 I think is also very important. So the stability of um, of being able to start something and finish it and not have these external factors
0: slowing you down. I think that's very interesting when you say the external factors because that talks about something even beyond the education system itself is the environment in which it occurs also, such that a world-class education may not be able to exist in places of instability because, you know, you can even talk about the mental health of students, the concentration, etc., which is really... Depending on what is happening in the environments too so yeah i really agree too but i think that way something that we could add to that is applicability of skills what do you think about that
1: well so so yeah so i think you know if you if you have if you have a situation where you have research um great professors you have knowledge production and 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 you know knowledge acquisition and knowledge production um, implied in all of that is that you're rooted in the local content, right? Um, so, you know, it, 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 to me, one of the challenges we sometimes have on the African continent as, we, we're, as we're teaching is that we're using sometimes examples and case studies that have nothing to do with the local context. So... Um, you know, Harvard and other schools have written amazing case studies. I mean, really, I mean, top-notch case studies. These are A-plus case studies, but many of them don't have a a local application, so they may not necessarily apply to Côte d'Ivoire or to Abidjan specifically or to Congo or to Ghana. And so one of the things that I've been a proponent of is the creation of case studies and educational material that are rooted in, in, um, in the local realities and local application so that to your point, the education is relevant. So I'd like to see a time when, whether you're in elementary school or in high school or at the university, you are being taught to solve the problems that are near you, um, that you can see and touch. So that we are producing problem solvers and not people who kind of think, oh, this is you know the problem here is way too too much for me. I'm I'm going to go somewhere else and build my life somewhere else. But but really giving people examples of how local individuals or regional or continental citizens of Africa have solved certain problems that I think is going to be very inspirational for the students who are coming up behind us. Um and I think we lack that. It's it's a serious problem.
0: I think that's very true. I think part of that is that global education, particularly African education, is is under pressure to respond to its world. That is changing, right? And you can see that our education has been a lot of repetition and route learning and needs more of an integration of technology, but especially critical thinking how do we make the merger of technology and critical thinking happen in our contextual education? Now, my next question is that is, how do we make that um, definite in the definition of um, an African relevant education? Because as you said, there could be critical thinking that is being taught in a certain context or use case studies that are different so how do we merge those two things that is critical thinking technology for an african relevant education
1: yeah i mean listen you know it's really going to take some serious um investments you know um and and i think that's where we forget you know we, for, we forget that education costs money you cannot have education and expect a $1,000, you know, type of result. Like, you know, we we put so little into education, but we expect big things. I don't have the actual number, but I I posted this two days ago on my LinkedIn, and I was so intrigued by it. But I think it's like, it's in the billions of dollars. Japan is, is stated that it's going to invest billions of dollars into its university system so that it can sort of keep up with, you know, what is happening in the world. And don't quote me for this, but I, I think they, 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 they looked at their ranking for uh, research papers. And, and I think like Japan right now is like number 11, some number like that. I'm not sure, but it's it's lower than where they want to be. And so they want to be high, high, you know, ranked higher. Maybe they want to be number three or number two. I think probably number one is the United States. Um, but they, they looked at their ranking. They looked at what universities are doing around the world and they're like, we're behind. So they're going to put billions, not millions, but billions of dollars into upgrading their university system so that it is world-class in their eyes. Now that just gives you an example for the kinds of money that it takes to get to where we want to be. And, um, now many are going to say but Amini no African government has billions of dollars to invest in, in universities. Oh okay that that's probably true. But then you know you're going to get what you invest. And so if, if if this is an area of priority for us we have to put in, the, in the, the the financial investment, we have to put in the intellectual investment. It has to be a strategic um, a strategic activity for the growth of the country. Um, again, you know I've slightly studied you know south South Korea and and how they've became you know a, a, an industrialized developed country which was very poor in the fifties you know again, I'm not an expert on South Korea, but they put in a lot of money i believe in three things education manufacturing infrastructure you know they 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 understood that um there's, there's, there's an infrastructural need that is necessary for economic development, roads, electricity, water. All that has to be, that's the foundation. You've got to have educated people. They put a lot of money into that. And then they want it to be seen as a place where you can make things. So unless African countries really start being strategic about where education fits in the, in the economic development story, we're, we're just always going to be behind.
0: Yeah. That 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 made me think a lot. Um thank you on that. But so the problem the problem with that is, you know, as you said, African countries may not have money to do that. But even when I think about it, who is the burden on? Is it on the government or the government has to pull that burden on the citizenry so that for example private individuals can set up universities like Ashesi University? Like ALU, they, of course they are doing their best to support people, but people who can pay can go to those universities and get such an education that is truly transformative. But then what happens is that we are keeping on widening the gap that we should be closing because people have money to access good education. So that becomes really a tandem for me. How do we reconcile that?
1: Hmm. I mean, you just you're just asking all the tough questions, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> you just you just want to put me on the spot that's what you want to do
0: but no, you know what these, no, a no, good no. Conversation.
1: these but you but you're hitting But you see this, these are the questions that we must must only ask ourselves but we must ask it to a broad spectrum of people and really come up with a series of solutions um because you really hit it on the nail education should be the great equalizer um one of my favorite sayings. Um, and I think I, I didn't make this up. I think Martin Luther King made this up. I could be wrong. But somebody famous, I think, talked about, um, you know, education being the great equalizer. And, and I really believe that to be true. Um, and, and I think there, there's, there's research to bear the fact that education is a great equalizer. The other thing that's a great equalizer is the ability to build businesses as freely as possible, which is what, which is what makes America great, you know, not to follow our friend Trump saying, but, you know, um, America makes it easy for you to start a business and um, and that's a good thing. And, and it's the reason why America has so many businesses of various sizes, and that's super good for the economy. But going back to education, um, how do we equalize education, good education for as many people as possible? And I think key players have to kind of be at the table. You hit it on the nail. Who is who should be held accountable for whether you know for whether education is being provided well or not. And and you know, people may disagree or agree with me on this, but I think it squarely falls on the government. The government needs to be a driver, not the only actor to your point about liberalizing the university sector, the, the education sector, where you allow private players to come in and fill in those gaps. But the government does need to be a driver of the education sector um, because, because education is a public good. Uh, just, like the, just like governments have to be drivers of the defense sector, like I should not be expected as a Congolese person to take up arms and protect myself within my country. That's not my job. That's not where. That's not the best place to 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 spend my talents. <laughs> that's not the best thing I can do for my country. My country should 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 protect my borders and protect me internally and externally. And that gives me the freedom to then go out and do the work that I'm supposed to do as an individual. Education, I feel, I think, falls into that same category. Um, and 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 so it, it's, governments have to be held accountable. But then private players need to work with government, or at least, you know, you know, complement and supplement the work that the government is doing, and 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 fill in those gaps. But like you said, Ashesi, who I love. I mean, Patrick Awa is one of my favorite human being on the planet. He is one of my favorite. I just I love being around him. I love talking to him. I feel smarter after I've been around him. Um, But he's only able, at this point for his model, only able to support about 1,000 students. Meanwhile, the University of Ghana, I think has about 40,000 plus students. And so those students are deserving of a good education as well. What do we do for them? Again, I think it's a combination of private players, public players, and individuals coming together to try to fill in the gap. But the accountability has to rest on the the government.
0: I think that the favorite thing, my most favorite thing I've heard um, from you, I mean, you've said a lot of very intriguing stuff, is the analogy around picking up a gun. Because I I, I really think that is so good. Um, People should not have to think about where their future education um, is going to lead them because they are not really in an environment that enhances that I think it should definitely fall on the government and, and that kind of analogy really vivifies it for me. Um, thank you very much on that So you know, still on education because I mean, I, this conversation is definitely not going to be all about education but you are an expert to the most parts and I am very passionate about the topic and so I'm just learning from you in the process um, By the way, if you can get a, a particular word here, we'll be very happy to have him <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh,
1: oh, I know, right? Oh, I'm sure. No, 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 Patrick. Oh, yeah, no, he is. Oh, I, I love that man. He's so wonderful yes, yes. Um, on so many levels. Yeah, he's just, he, you know, we need more people like him. And I know we have more people like him. Um, he just had an opportunity to, you know, to, 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 to do the work that he's done and to make the impact that he's had. Imagine if we, we created environments for other Patrick Awa to emerge um, we
0: would just all be better off. Yeah, it goes without saying that I, I personally think from all that I've read from you that you are another version of Patrick Edwards. So no, thank you for... no, no,
1: no, 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 I am not. I did not start a university. I have yet to do that. I
0: have yet to do
1: that. I mean, okay,
0: okay, okay.
1: Yeah, but okay. give me time, give me time. I, I, plan to live, I plan to live 100 years, so I have some time.
0: Yeah, you do, <laughs> you do, you do. So, you know, you wrote this article where you were talking about that statistics and students are telling us that perhaps technology-focused um, education for young people may be problematic. And you went on giving these case studies and analogies of how people are, during the pandemic, uh, asking for their money's back for online education because they don't feel like it's equally worth it, people feel like they are not getting the same in-person interaction. That begs the question for me of the role of edtech, right? Educational technology platforms um, in the future of education. Because when we envision education, like the Mark Zuckerbergs of this world are trying to build Oculus and all these big platforms, they are coming. And it almost seems like education in the future is going to be online on screen without people involved. I just want to know your thoughts around that.
1: Mm, Yeah. So I think we just need to continue perfecting the model around how how we mix technology with, you know, what I would call sort of traditional brick and mortar education. And and the um, the fact that we are, you know, social animals and that we, you know, part of learning comes from interacting, de- debating and those sort of informal um you know, interactions that can occur on any given day on a college campus, on a on a high school campus, or in elementary school. So I think I think we, you know, those who are, you know, it's all about technology, I think, may be missing the mark. And then those who are like, technology is the worst thing that's ever happened to education may also be missing the mark. There is a beautiful middle ground. You know, there's a beautiful hybrid that can be, that can be struck. Um, and, 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 and it also depends on, you know, you know, the age of the student. So I have a nine-year-old. Um, it is not in her best interest to be in front of a screen all day long, um, learning her mathematics, her history, her science. It just, you know, I, it, it doesn't work for my daughter. Um, there are some elements that she can learn online in, in short spurts, but then she, she, she loves being in the classroom. She loves being able to see her, her, her classmates and, and talking to them and being able to look in the eye of the teacher. And, and you know, the, the emotional, um, psychological and social gains of her being able to interact with her teacher in real time and with her with the other students and with the school administrators really interact with the system um, is part of her growing up it's part of how she will develop into an adult and to remove that for children particularly of a certain age i think is detrimental Um, but even when you go you know into the higher grades um high school and or university I mean, I've you know, since I wrote that article, I've obviously spent I I spent days, days talking to people about how they're experiencing education, and um and everybody is just talking about being able to find that good that good mix of um in you know of a, a hybrid model that takes in the best that technology has to offer and the best that um that uh, sort of traditional brick-and-mortar in-person education has to offer?
0: Yeah, um, again, I don't want to name any shame, but particularly in Ghana, there was this initiative by the Ministry of Education to try and, you know, put assessments in the general teaching infrastructure, like different kind of assessments, even if you went to the university to learn teacher training course or something related to that, you still have to go through an assessment. That was heavily backlashed because I think one of the problems with education in Africa is it becomes overly politicized and our four-year, five-year regimes, they do not care about the long-term perspective that should be um, put into the thoughtfulness of when we are um, thinking about educational prosperity amongst other things because education cannot be built in silos you have to really have a long-term view in it
1: i couldn't agree with you more um i've, I've read some interesting studies about that about how um you know the the the, the long-term view that one has to have on education and how it goes against the short term view of political um of of elections and and you know and political parties and who's in power and who's not and um and one way to solve that is to make sure that throughout the system you have people who are there um you have jobs that are being filled to to support the long term um, view that one has to have on education. Um, and these people are there for the long haul and they don't change because there's a new president. You know, they they change because the person decides to move on or something like that. Um, and so that's that's one way to solve that issue, because you hit it on the nail. Uh, the return on on investment for education is long term and you've got to set up the systems and you're going to try certain things and they're not going to work. you got to you know, think of something else. You got to really work fast, but 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 work thoughtfully. Um, and, you know, there's just there's so much to go into it. And I don't think it, it, for, for a lot of governments, it's a big headache. They don't want to put in the time and effort and, and long term view that is required in order to really make an impact. And so they want quick fixes and education. You know, when you bring in quick fixes, it's typically not um, productive.
0: I want to piggyback on what you said on teachers because I think that is truly important and I want to give reverence to that point um, when I think about personally the role of teachers I go deep back into the history of knowledge itself especially when you go to um, Greek philosophy and all of that you can see people like Aristotle um, the kind of thoughtfulness and mentorship that was passed on to say from Aristotle to say Socrates from Socrates to Plato even in the in, in, in the scientists from um, Newton, amongst all these, it was more of collaborative mentorship and learning under someone. And I think that maybe perhaps because the education system now has too many students, and how dare me say too many students? Because we de- we definitely need a lot of students in school, but we need to match that capacity. capacity. And with Truly thoughtful, engaging people because it seems like our educational system is flooded with people who just want to make a, a living and are not really concerned about it. Because I, and then again, maybe it goes back to how we are teaching our our teachers. Because I don't know, but it has to be very empathetic, and obviously the people should know the subject matter. But it's also about knowing each and every student individually. Because I and i don't speak for, just for myself but i think a lot of people do agree that they they had that kind of breakthrough in the education when one teacher set them aside and paid particular attention to them and their needs
1: i you hit it on the nail i mean i mean really teachers are are, are critical and um we we've had you know an explosion in um in our in our uh, population and so we have a lot of um kids with millions and millions i think one of the numbers that i've seen recently is Two hundred and fifty million um, school-aged children need need to be need to be taught every day on the African continent, and so you know how many how many teachers do we need in order to support two two hundred and fifty million students across the continent? We need a lot of teachers, um, and, I, and 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 teaching is such a it's such an amazing and wonderful profession. Um, and it, it, it can, it can really change the lives of, 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 um, of students and individuals and frankly, really change a nation. But again, um, the investments have to be made in teacher training. We need to pay them well, you know, we, 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 you know, many teachers in the government schools, for example, they can go months without being paid. I mean, how do you expect somebody to work and you're not paying them? Or when you do pay them, you pay them pennies. Yeah, they're not going to be as committed um, as you like them to be. It's human nature. It's not an African thing. It's not a Congolese thing or a Ghanaian thing. It's it's a human thing. You can can observe that anywhere in the world. You don't pay me well. You don't value me. You don't give me professional development. There is a correlation between the teachers who get consistent professional development and how well they do in the classroom than those who don't. You don't pay me well. You don't value my contribution. You don't give me professional development, and you want me to produce miracles in a class of two hundred students. It's impossible. So we have to really um, put in best practices into our into our educational system, and we typically and often forget, you know, the teachers. Um, one of the best articles or research papers I have ever um, read is on. Uh, it's Mackenzie who did this research uh, document it 's been maybe eight years or even more in which they said the best school systems at, at the core of the best school systems are teachers. They looked at you know teachers I think in Japan in Finland, and other places where you know where where education is is, is, is thought to be well done, and at the core are the teachers the teachers are well paid the teachers are trained and it's not just anybody that can be a teacher you you really have to jump through hoops to be a teachers in to be a teacher in certain countries um so again we you know it's not about a copying and pasting but i think the idea that you have to be competent in order to teach um the next generation of young people i think that can be used across the continent but how we measure competence and how we train our teachers, you know, need to have a local context. You know, we have to use it, you have to use a local context to do that. But 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 the mission has to be we're trying to get the best minds in front of our kids so that our kids can value um being an intellectual and doing the best work and going out there and solving problems.
0: Yeah, I think you said it best. <clears throat> um if you want to get the best minds, the best minds should be teaching our kids. So talking about investments, educational investments, we've, um, we were just talking about investing in teachers, investing in the education sector at large. You have worked in that space at Africa Integris uh, where you were trying to build universities. What was some of the most difficult um, problems that you faced then?
1: You know, Africa Integris was a really interesting experience for me. and uh, I took that job because I really wanted to learn how to, we marry, you know, private equity, finance with the educational sector in Africa. And, by, you know, by way of building, you know, the facilities, the modern facilities that we need in order to, um, you know, to, to, to make sure that, you know, students, professors, administrators are are engaging in an educational system that is modern from a physical perspective and um and and the money that is required to do something like that and and where is the money going to come from um you know a few things that I learned one um, you know African universities, whether they're private or public really do need to um, become well versed in how financing and how financial resources can be used and maximized to improve the physical facilities of our educational institutions. I, um, I won't name the foundation but I was talking to a big foundation that works in Africa and I was saying to someone there that I think that there could be a training that is developed that basically goes into the private and public universities across Africa and teaches them the financial tools that they can use to improve their physical capacity. Um, Because I think there's a lot of um, learning that is missing. There's a lot of interesting um, sort of tools that many universities may not be aware of, and universities may have assets that they're not um, using to improve their physical facilities, and so that's so that's I, I learned that that there's there's a lack of deep knowledge. There's some knowledge, but not it, it's not deeply sort of entrenched in some of the universities. So that's one. Second. Um, We do have to figure out, and it's connected to the first thing that I said, we do need to figure out and work with the financial sector um, and see how we can tell them that investing in in education and particularly in in its physical infrastructure can be a moneymaker, but not to the detriment of the university or the school itself. Um, where it becomes a debt burden that is too hard for the school to bear. So there has to be sort of a middle ground. And I don't think that we're, we're spending enough time sort of figuring that out. And then third, this is where I think the diaspora can play a very strong role. There's so many people in the diaspora, in the African diaspora that know the space. So they that know, that, that understand finance. And I wish more of them um, came into the university financing space um, and, and brought their expertise and hopefully they're bringing their knowledge of the African continent or their specific countries in the local context plus their finance background together um, you know we could, you know we could do, we could do some interesting work around upgrading the the physical facilities of our universities and our educational spaces because people might say oh it's so what I mean you know you you don't need anything fancy it is true you do not need a fancy school in order to learn well but but we do need to have the basics right the basics have to be there and sometimes you walk into educational institutions where the basics the physical facility is so bad that it's hard to learn in that environment.
0: Yeah. So speaking about um, diaspora investments and, you know, essentially it looks more like and correct me if I'm wrong, that universities need a kind of a CFO figure that big companies have. Right? Yes,
1: yes. And, and and it's interesting. So, you know, many do have somebody who handles finance, but you gotta go beyond that, right? So it's one thing to sort of collect the money, make sure the money is collected, make sure it's spent properly, but but, but you need somebody who can think strategically. And I think, you know, you to your point, a CFO role, somebody in that role is not just counting the beans, but he's trying to figure out, okay, what are the financial uh, challenges that we have, and what are sort of the interesting and creative ways that we can solve these issues. And I don't think that many universities have a person or a set of people who think in those terms in African universities.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Again, what I wanted to talk about was diaspora investments. Now, you talked about the people investments, people coming back. mm mm-hmm.
1: yeah.
0: When you ask people to come back to the content, and obviously the universities cannot pay them, and they can be worth a lot more in other places, what should be their motivation to come?
1: Ah, she's asking all the tough
0: questions. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, answering from your particular perspective, I think that you could have done so much working in probably not just non-profit organizations, but working in for-profit organizations across the world. What makes you want to come back and be executive director of organizations and work with all these African-centered um, organizations that really want to improve different sectors of the African economy?
1: It's funny, you know, if my brother was here, you know, he'd be laughing because he's always like, why do you work for nonprofits? You need to work for a private organization that can pay you real money. <laughs> um <laughs> Um, you know, he's, he's, he's so funny. Um, but, um, and then, you know, and then you, you, you take that money that you make the, 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 you know, the millions of dollars that you could potentially make according to him. And then you take that money and you invest it on the African continent under your own terms. Um, so that's also a very, obviously a very interesting and very viable, you know, viable uh, model. But, um, to answer your question, I, I mean, there there are many ways I think to slice the cake, right? I mean, the the African diaspora, wow, what a what a, a gold mine, frankly. I mean, when I think about all of my friends and my friends' friends and my friends' friends' friends, I mean, we just lots of talented people, lots of talented people scattered all over the world and many who still have an emotional or you know, family or even work, you know, relationship with the with the continent, professional relationship with the continent. And they're they're really uh, committed to making an impact, and and I don't think that there's one way to make that impact. But that's why I think um, to answer your question about you know why should somebody someone like me or anyone you know go back to the continent to give back in in in, in this way, but let's say in the in the university way, in you know with working with nonprofits and maybe specifically education. That's why I'm, I, I really implore, you know, I, I'd like to ask the, those who have funds, you know, the, the, the foundations that work in Africa, the, the high net worth individuals that have made lots of money in Africa. I'd love for those foundations and those individuals to create a platform that allows um, the, the smarts and the brilliance of the many Africans that are working in London and in New York and everywhere else, To make a contribution to the continent um you know many people say well i shouldn't have to create a platform you should just do it on your own and many people do do it on their own they really do they pack their bags they leave they go back home and they make it work but but you know you you just want to have various avenues to to um, facilitate that migration back home and um those who have means can create a platform that makes it easier for people to give of their um of the intellectual capacity to various projects in africa and also the learning that can occur because it's not just Amini, you know i amini go to congo and i give of myself no well they're congolese who have been living in congo all this time who have been giving of themselves too so it it, it becomes sort of like a joint venture and we use um the The learning and the intelligence and the perspective that we all have to pull together and make something better um so it's not an either or but it's it's a coming together of minds to to you know to to change the you know what africa is is going through um, yeah i mean that's that's what i would I, I think just i i it sometimes frustrates me that um, some of some of these foundations and other, you know, folks with lots of money, you know, why they're not creating some of these platforms. But I guess everybody has the right to use their funding the way they want to. And maybe I should take my brother's uh, advice and make my millions and then create the platform that I (laughs) want to create instead of expecting others to do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's the sad part about money, right? When people make their money, they decide what to do with it. And I've talked about this very, very deeply. Um, myself, I'm just so passionate about all these things, right? I'm still going in, into starting a startup right now. And the reason why I'm starting a startup and I'm struggling to even find funding right now is that I want to be able to build and make my own money and then really invest in my vision for Africa because then I'll be boundless if I have all the money because I feel like as much as you want to convince people they don't share your vision. That's the point. Like, that's the problem. They don't share your vision for educational transformation. And if you just had the money, I know, I mean, you be thinking, if I just had the money, I'll just do this. <laughs> yes.
1: Oh, yes. If, if I won the lottery tomorrow and all of a sudden I had $100 million sitting in the bank, oh, my goodness. You would, I mean, people would literally get sick of me because I will be just, just trampling across the continent trying to make an impact, you know, with the money. That I've just you know suddenly won and and you know and um and really making investments in the areas that I think that are critical. I mean, you know, teachers would be one big investment. really? Can you imagine teacher colleges sprinkled throughout Africa, really you know bringing the best minds into the teaching profession and really elevating the teaching profession? Imagine that that would be amazing, right? Um, imagine a fund that, um, that universities, both private and public could sort of tap into to make, um, physical facilities improvements, um, and, um, figuring, helping them to figure out how to structure those deals. That would be amazing. I'd put up a fund for that. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. Yeah.
0: You know, talking about joint ventures and now a fund. The conversation I'm having with you is very easy because you're basically segueing me into what I'm going to say next. this. <laughs> um, so the African diaspora, as you said, is a gold mine. But you can see that investments from the African diaspora, when I talk about these investments, I mean monetary investments, they come at the exact point of need to smaller families and individuals who need health care, etc, etc. How do we make sure that we have a sustainability plan for that kind of money that is coming from. And I don't, I'm not asking you to give me an answer. I mean, just like, let's think about it. How do we make sure? Because in my mind, there needs to be a way that a government is helping that money channel directly into specific things and not at a point where the grandmother is dying or the child needs to go to university. It's a, such a rash process. But then the money is coming in, gradually can be put into something bigger for the family, but also for these endowments funds and, and all the things we are talking about. Because there's a lot of money coming in, but almost as it's coming in in small bits and pieces that it goes nowhere and makes very little impact than it could make when it was, when it was more um, congregated.
1: You know the the diaspora remittance issue is is i mean it's it's one that you know there are people who spend a lot of time sort of thinking about this tracking this, et cetera, but you know a few a few things one you're absolutely right, you know most of the f- money, whether it's a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, whatever it is that we send to our family members um which represent billions of dollars um you know in the aggregate like i I was looking at something i think Nigeria. I could be wrong about this, but I think it's like $43 billion. You know, Nigerians send that much money to Nigeria every year to support family members and close friends on basic needs. And then, you know, the basic needs that we have, food, shelter, education, health care. And sometimes that money goes into um, maybe building a home, th- making those types of investments. Um, I think, according to the stats, very few of that money goes into making big investments that sort of have a, a lasting, um, you know, a lasting effect. Um, and, you know, but mostly goes into consumption. And that's real. Right. I need money to pay for school bills or to pay for a medical bill or to eat or to pay the rent. Those are real issues. And unfortunately, because our economies uh, tend not to be strong, um, we, you know, we, we don't have enough jobs for everybody. Um, our families outside of, of of Africa end up helping us um, you know to to get through life. And so and, and there have been mechanisms that have tried to um, direct some of that money to go into investments that are long lasting. So you know, you know businesses, um, you know, to build a new business or um, or some some other activities that have that has a long lasting, you know, uh, effect and can, 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 can not just help you eat today, but eat tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and 50 years from now. Um, that's where I think, you know, there's some weakness in the remittance area. And there have been platforms that have tried to uh, improve our ability to collect all this money and in the aggregate, invest it into something that is durable um, and many of those um systems haven't done super well. I mean I'm not an expert on this, but you know um they're, they're people have tried, but it hasn't it hasn't sort of blown up as as we would want to and I, and, and I don't know enough to know why um, I <laughs> came up with an idea um that for example, when people call me to say, "Hey, Amini, can you help me pay for schooling?" Instead of me sending my cousin that $500 that they need to pay for an educational activity, I want to send that money directly to the educational activity. Um, And instead of, you know, my cousin calling me and saying, I'm about to get married, you know, can you send me some money for, you know, for my wedding, she can tell me like a specific business that she's going to use. So let's say the caterer instead of me sending the money directly to my cousin, I send it directly to the caterer. And I I thought that that could be an interesting way to fund um, productive activities on the continent with hard cold cash, because the calls are gonna come. But instead of going for it to go to the family member, it goes directly to the business, avoiding all kinds of issues that can occur sometimes when you give a family member direct cash. And although that's still very necessary, but just having that option, um, it's still an idea that's percolating in my head. And, um, you know, with technology, going back to technology, I don't see why, you know, one can't do that. Um,
0: So, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you, because in the spirit of sharing ideas, I actually have ideas myself. (laughs) Um, And like like you, I didn't know if it will work, but... I think there are modules that we can replicate. So there's this guy who went to the same high school as I did. He's a senior. Um, He's built this three-system module. Obviously, he went to UPenn. And that is, going back to what we've discussed, the quality of the education and the exposure. He went to UPenn from a high school in Ghana and got all the resources that he needs. Went to pitch this great idea of this collaborative 360 organisation where that lives at the intercession of education, healthcare, and farming for a local uh, community that he came from. And so what they do is that they invest directly into the farming and make sure that the farming is across the chain, is sustainable. And then they build a farm and, and then, sorry, they build a, a, a school that is free so that as a merit of the payment that you are gaining from the farming business, your part of that payment goes into the education of your children, which you don't have to pay for. And then a clinic, which you also don't have to pay for. And I think that's a very beautiful idea that we can scale. But then thinking through that, yeah, thinking through that, what other people can do, because, you know, our commitments to Africa, to our countries, are very based on where we come from, right? Like he went to, going back to his um traditional home, for people who are in the diaspora, who come from those particular places, they can form such a, like a trust fund, and you know, it's like a rolling fund, a syndicate, something that goes on a month, and then gradually they will get there. And then when they do, they figure out what business opportunity that needs um, um, to be there, like in in the, in the village or in the, in the town, whatever it is, that solves sort of a certain critical need, employ locals decentralized access to these jobs for the people and then it has tremendous impact so they don't have to obviously going to pay for people's education and all of that because when people are employed people have access to this capital they can do that so i think that's one way that we can do that set up a platform where we're able to congregate the efforts of people so that gradually they are doing that what is a rolling fund a syndicate a monthly monthly installment payment it's a congregated effort of small people coming together, putting this fund together. After some years, it can come together to build something like that. And I feel like a lot of things should be decentralized, right? If you really are a town that really wants to make money, what the sachet water that you buy, don't buy it from the next town. Create a small um, what sachet making business. And then all of you, all the shops, be committed to buying it. It's the locals there that are... Um, are getting those jobs and they are the ones that are being economically improved and the second part of the of the suggestion is what if government incentivizes people to actually send more money home and in um, all these organizations they do that by by saying okay every time that you send $50 we are going to make a bet of 20% or 30% more of that and then we're going to double down the money. So we're going to contribute 30%, 40% into it. That incentivizes people to bring it. But then the money that the government is bringing collaborative with yours, we are going to take a percentage and put it into the child that you are having, your, your cousin's auntie something trust fund. So their education. It's not coming to the family. It is going to a fund. So that when eventually they get there, it is going to an, a health fund, something. When we get that kind of personalized financial distributed system for those particular families, you know that you don't have to wake up one day and say someone has this disease or someone is going to school because the government, together with you, is investing. I, I don't know if this makes any sense, but yeah, I've just been thinking around and yeah, that's, that's the things I've been thinking about.
1: I I think I I like it because I think, you know, there's just there's so many ways to slice this. Right. Um, And I really like the idea of of governments creating incentives for people to send more. But then it gets funneled into um, a fund that allows you to invest in either personally, you know, to to, for another person in your family, let's say um, a grandma or a child. And so you invest into their future and the government basically keeps the money for you or something like that, if, if folk, folks trust the government in that way. But the other thing, too, is imagine if it weren't for the... Um,
0: people trust the government for, the, for, 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 for social security, right? It's just like that. I don't know why they wouldn't. It, oh, so,
1: not, so that's a good point, right? So it, it's a social security mechanism in which the diaspora is involved. And I think that could be brilliant. That could be absolutely brilliant. The other thing to, to remember is if it weren't for the African diaspora, let's just be honest here, let's, let's just talk frankly, if it weren't for the African in the diaspora, many of our economies would collapse. So let's think about that. Let's just let's say there's 43, 43 billion dollars that Nigerians sent to to Nigeria. Let's say that tomorrow we stop it. We stop it.
0: The economies collapsed. Absolutely. Like, no doubt.
1: And some might say those who are cynical and those who are, you know, revolutionary, they might say, well, why don't we do that? so that so that so that our brothers and sisters can can say hey government you're not doing your job that's part of the reason why i got to ask my cousin that lives in chicago to send me money so now that he or she can't send me money you need to step up governments the african governments want us to send money cuz that's how we keep up our these economies that's how we avoid kids from going into the streets and taking up arms and saying hey You're not doing right by me. The fact that hundreds and thousands of young Senegalese men get on those boats, young Malian, young Niger, I mean from all across the continent, get on those rickety, awful boats and risk their lives to go to Europe. It's all that so that they can send something back to the wife that they left behind, to the children that they left behind, to the mom that they left behind. I mean, this stuff is serious. Our young men and, and some women and children, some, some of our women take their babies with them and get on those horrible boats to see if they can get to Italy, which allows them to enter the European Union and then they'll figure it out. We're failing. people the every single person in that boat is a person that's failed that, that that has felt um uh that has felt alone that has felt like there's nothing for them in the country to do to improve their economic situation so this is the only choice they have you might think that it's it's it is irrational and one might think well that's irrational in that person's mind it's very rational. I'll take the chance because it's better than dying of hunger and watching my kids die of hunger.
0: Yeah, that's very true.
1: This is yeah, stuff that just true. that that just breaks my heart. But this is happening every day, every single day.
0: Yeah, um the sad part about that is, you know, the few people that actually do go, they do get better. They do get better. And and that is That is a sideline motivating more people to say, you know what, even if I is a 1% chance, I'll take my 1% chance because actually it does. And it's so sad that it gets better to the extent that their impact becomes multi-generational because of them that went, they are able to buy one laptop and that one laptop makes sure that someone gets a better education. And based on that investment, that person who gets a better education is able to help the other, and that that starts the chain. And so, you know, w- when we talk about these things and we we talk about how dangerous it is, I think that the reason why people still do that, they they see that one percent, and and what the one percent is 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 doing. And so, yeah, it's really disgusting, but also something we should really empathize with beyond just. People just doing a stupid activity of wanting to kill themselves for better riches because there is a lot more there to unpack than re- usually like policy analysts are, are willing to talk about. Exactly. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Are-
0: oh. you, you, you hit it on the nail. The
1: the the and 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 when you're able to look at your neighbor who has you know a father in Europe and that neighbor you know and that father sends you know three hundred dollars a month and as a result of that you know, kids are eating better or something better is happening, you look at that and you're like, oh, well, I, I need to do that. I need to do that. And I might die, but I'm willing to take that chance. But if I make it, this is what I'll be able to do for my family. You know, um, but our governments and, and those in civil society um, and, you know, those who have the means to, to really make a difference here, we really need to take a look at that because it's a serious problem. Um, and, um, and it, 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 again, accountability goes back to, you know, the governments who are looking at this and, and not, you know, making sure that it, it stops and that we keep our young people and we use their productive efforts to, to better our economies um, instead of feeling the need to take a very dangerous voyage to, to, to Europe for a better life.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, that's some really deep stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about not yeah not so there. deep stuff so we end the conversation this has been a very long intriguing but also exciting um conversation you know i've learned so much um let me basically talk about coming back to africa to work here on the continent um we We'd already talked about this, but like if anyone is listening, what are your final words to them to say that you know these are the problems like this here I know it's difficult. I know you might not be paid as much, but this is the real impact that you are seeing, and this is why they should come back home for education for whatever
1: you know i don't i you know i- I can't tell people what to do with their lives, but i think I think it's really a matter of each person understanding where their strengths are um and where they could really make an impact. And it could be that they stay in the United States or Europe or whatever, and they can make an impact from there. Um, it could be that they pack their bags and go home because they found a job on the continent that allows them to make an impact there. It could be that they're sort of going back and forth, which is sort of what I do. Um, so I think everybody has to determine uh, what makes sense for them. Um, and, and, but, but I think at the core, of it all i, I think the the, eye, the the eyes on the prize is increasing the capacity for African nations and African citizens to be drivers of their own development i think I think that's that's the eyes on the prize and 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 how that happens um, is going to differ but um but I think that just has to be it because we can't continue to rely on others to make things better for our continent, which is why I love projects like IUGB, like Ashesi and the others, because these are all projects that help to increase the capacity of African citizens to be drivers of their own development. These are homegrown um, activities. These are homegrown attempts to chip away at improving education um, they don't solve everything, but they, 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 they are participating in, in the solution of, of how we improve education. So that participation, we need hundreds and thousands of people to be a part of it in order for the needle to get moved. Um, so for me, you know, my final thoughts are, you know, determine how you want to make an impact and figure out the best way f- for you to make an impact based on where you are. And and you know and take it from there and then and then finally just you know I'm all about just continuous learning I'm I I get very excited about talking to people at d- different levels doing different things and and just learning from as many people as possible um, and hopefully that informs my work and that makes me more effective in the job that I do.
0: It's been an absolute pleasure, Amini Kanjuju. Amini is the executive director of. IUGV, that is International University of Grand Bassam, which is the first university in La Côte d'Ivoire to offer American style libraries, um, really at the intersection of African educational transformation. Again, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us here on the Change Africa podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: If you enjoy listening to this podcast, consider supporting our fundraiser to help us build a mini home studio. This will help us produce a better audio quality and enrich your overall listening experience. Find the link to the fundraiser in our show notes. Special acknowledgement to those who have supported us already. and My team members, Gabriel Sakite, our producer and sound engineer, and Nathanael Opoku, our marketing lead. Subscribe to this podcast to get notified about new episodes every week and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcast. Join us next week for more thoughtful conversations with Africa's most inspiring leaders.